Welcome to the Growth Enablement Madness Podcast, and I'm Jim Ward, your host, CEO of BrainCell, the growth enablement company. I'm absolutely mad about helping businesses grow and scale. And in this podcast, my team and I get a chance to talk shop with industry thought leaders about a variety of growth enablement strategies, stories, and technology trends. I'm happy that you're here, so let's get the growth conversation started. Hi, everybody. I'm Jim Ward, CEO of BrainCell. Well, first of all, we have Brian Anderson, who's always here as a sidekick, who's our content manager at BrainCell. Hi, Brian. I'm always in the Zoom meeting, it feels like. Yes, but you hi. are. Hello. And I have a new co-host this episode, and that's Allie Lippman, who has just been promoted to account executive, who's wicked smart. So excited to be here. Hi. She's also a, a musician. So one of these times, maybe we'll get her to play something. And then today we have a guest who I've been very excited to have join us, Aaron Harris, who is CTO with Sage Software. And well, we'll get there. But could you maybe, Aaron, say hi to the audience and tell us a little bit about yourself and your beautiful background? Yeah, sure. Hi, everybody. I'm Aaron Harris. I'm Sage's chief technology officer. So it's my job to chart the future and build some of the technology that'll get us there. Yeah, I'm, I'm in Vermont today. This is uh, it was meant to be a getaway vacation home, but COVID has turned it into a quarantine home. So I've been pretty fortunate to have a nice big airy space to spend my quarantine time in. A little bit about me. I joke my resume is pretty short. I left Arthur Anderson, uh, somewhat notorious or notable or whoever you want to frame it, uh, accounting firm back in the late 90s, moved to Silicon Valley, helped to start Sage Intact, where I was a CTO for 17 years. We sold the company to Sage four years ago, and here I am. And you were instrumental because I met you originally before you were CTO of the full Sage corporate, which is around a $3 billion company if I recall the numbers, but you were the Sage, or you were previous to Sage buying Intact. You were part and parcel to the building out the Intact product, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah. So I was the first full-time developer on the Intact product, and I was the CTO for, I used to joke that by the time we sold Intact, I was the longest serving CTO of a private company in Silicon Valley. <laughs> That's <laughs> Yeah. Well, it was one heck of an acquisition for Sage. I remember saying in the audience to say, take care of that, that asset because it's really going to be the future, I think, for Sage. And now, can you tell me, as you know, maybe what you don't know, our focus is brain cells. We're a growth enablement company. And what that means to us is that we are working with clients to help them grow and scale their businesses by utilizing technologies. And so if I were to ask you, what does growth enablement mean to you? What, what does it mean to you? Oh, boy, it means all kinds of things. I'm not sure how much the audience knows about Sage, but Sage is going through a pretty dramatic transformation from a company that was started in the early 80s to sell desktop software, right, to help businesses automate. Oh, I didn't know that. To making the transition to the cloud and, and now making the transition to what I call the digital era. Enabling growth, you know, there's a lot of science, there's a lot of discipline, there's a lot of, you know, tools and processes. So growth enablement to me, I guess it's, it's a bit of a loaded term, but it's essentially the investments you make to help an organization scale. And by scale, it's lots of dimensions financially, meeting your objectives and your impact in society, creating the future you want for your employees, 
it's all the investment that sets you up to achieve those ambitions. I think that aligns with us very, very well in how we see it and utilizing all the technologies in our portfolio to assist with that scale. One of the things I was reading when I was looking online about you, you were involved in a Girls in A High, a global hackathon where teams work together, I guess, to create some projects on highlighting how AI or artificial intelligence is shaping the world. Do you remember some unique cases? Because I'm a super fan of artificial intelligence. And of course, some of my mind starts to go in really weird places on what it's going to do with machine learning and uh, natural language processing. But were there some memorable use cases that came out of that event? Yeah, I mean, all kinds. This whole organization is meant to reach teenage girls in parts of the world where technology is a little harder to get, where resources to help young folks to develop their skills, right, is, is harder to come by. And I guess what I was most impressed by with the projects that I've seen is, is how they really reflect the values of teenage kids these days, you know, what they care about. So there were there were many submissions focused on helping people to more effectively recycle, right, whether it's using uh, image classification to determine what is and what isn't recyclable and and then how best to go about recycling it. There were a couple of submissions about how to use AI to protect women in parts of the world where women just don't have the same rights, whether it's through legislation or through history, right? There were a number of submissions there One of the submissions that I thought was just really, really cool and appropriate was there was a, this was a group of girls actually out of Washington, D.C. So not all of the the representatives were from distant parts of the world. But what these girls saw with COVID was a complete disruption in our supply chains. And their idea was, hey, if we could create these sort of organic distribution networks with Uber with Lyft or with DoorDash, right? This idea that you can quickly use technology to put together networks to deliver. And in this case, it's it's people or it's your dinner. What if we could use that to reconfigure supply chains when farmers suddenly can't get their produce to market because there's a shortage of truckers? And what if suddenly it's difficult to get to the local grocery store? How can we set up the most effective places for people to go and buy those produce. And so these girls had this great idea to basically reconfigure this network of freelancers driving Uber or doing DoorDash, reconfigure them to support shifts and supply chain when there's big disruptions like COVID. This was teenage girls. These girls are in high school and they came up with us. <laughs> and they were able to demonstrate the AI algorithms, right, that, that actually predicted where they should put these centers and how to make the most effective routes to market. It's just really, really impressive. It's incredible. So Aaron, you've been around the block a long time. Tell me a little bit about gender equality in tech. What do you see the landscape? It's just your, you know, this experience really makes me wonder. The unfortunate answer is we have a very long way to go to get equal representation in tech. And it's more important than ever. When we were all building technology using you know pre-artificial intelligence the systems did exactly what you told them to do right you would code in the behavior and there was it was all predetermined what what behavior you would get with artificial intelligence we're now training computers to think and behave and make decisions that humans traditionally have been making 
And for every point in the cycle of AI development, starting with finding data, classifying data, labeling data, to choosing what projects we apply AI to, to training the AI, to make determinations about is AI predicting the things we want it to predict? Is it sort of driving the right outcomes? If we don't have a rich representation across gender, ethnicity, cultural background, we're only going to magnify the differences we have in society today, right? So it's imperative that we fix this problem. Yeah, I've read that AI reflects our biases. It magnifies them if we're not careful. There was a story about like, wasn't it like a Twitter, like AI Twitter account that was basically reading Twitter comments and like just turned into a big racist, misogynist like robot? Yeah, that was a, uh, a Microsoft experiment. They created an AI with its own Twitter account, and it was only trained on tweets and responses to tweets, and it quickly became incredibly racist and misogynistic, and they had to take it down. <laughs> oh my gosh. It was awful. Absolutely um, awful. I was thinking about, and I read something about, and it wasn't an artificial intelligence team necessarily, but it was an Afghanistan robotics team, women team that... I guess with the changes in the landscape there in Afghanistan, their future is uncertain. Have you heard anything more about that group? Haven't, but one can only imagine that there are groups within Afghanistan that need our help, and we've got to find you know some way to support them. And I won't sit here and say that I've got any answers. I can only say that this is a problem that needs to be addressed. Well, I know that it's been uh, about how long has it been since you were named CTO of Sage overall? little over two years now. Two years. And over the last year, certainly during pandemic, what comes to mind? What have you learned there at Sage? Well, let's see. I think the first thing early on, it was incredibly impressive to me how quickly people adopted to new ways of working. And it's not just engineers and technologists who are used to working remotely or used to using virtual tools. We had, I'm not sure what the number is, hundreds if not thousands of support agents who are used to going into the office every day who, in less than a week, they were all working from home and supporting our customers. So the first thing that really struck me is just how resilient and flexible people are and how something like COVID can bring people together in really positive ways. And we saw that for sure. Another thing... And this, I don't know, this may not sound believable when I say it. Companies, we always talk about, well, we do what's good for the customer. And it's true. We listen to our customers. um, We try to build products that they want. Sage was very determined to create a portfolio of cloud-native products for our customers because we really did, we know that they, everything's moving in that direction. You know, some things at different pace than others. But when COVID happens and suddenly you've got customers who have no way to access their systems because they can't get into the office. Suddenly, having some pure vision about how natively things have to be architected for the cloud, suddenly that's less important than making sure that your customers can get access. Right. So we increased our funding on some projects that help customers that are on tech that's a little bit harder to move to the cloud to get them there quickly and cost effectively. So it really can have the impact of really causing you to question, am I really thinking about what's right for my customers and what do they need? And situations like this can drive real customer needs to the surface so it's more obvious 
what they are. I, I can keep going on and on and on, but those are some of the highlights for me. Well, you know, I have always, and I've been in multiple functional areas of software, front-end CX-style products, CRM, marketing automation, and of course, back-end operational-style solutions with uh, Sage products, which also has CRM, but mainly ERP company. And I'm thinking that there's, unlike CRM, when the cloud came out, it, was, it tipped really fast, right? People adopted cloud quickly. In the ERP space, I've seen the tips as a slower rate. Customers are adopting cloud out of perhaps fear, maybe. Um, I think it's an unnecessary fear, but that's still fear in and of itself that their exposure to financials out in the cloud, what is the cloud, all of that. Do you think the pandemic helped move this along more quickly? The shift to people thinking, you know, we need to have our accounting systems in the cloud. Yeah, without a doubt. It accelerated every aspect of digitization and moving your accounting and financial systems to the cloud is something that's on a lot of companies' lists. The, the good and the bad of our industry is, is people don't change out their systems very often. So they can always get another year out of it, another two years out of it. They can optimize, they can add people. But COVID creates air cover for people to do things that are a little riskier than, than they're comfortable with, right? When you're focused on something that's a sort of world-changing as COVID is, suddenly the risk associated with changing your ERP system, you know, it seems more manageable. So there were lots of people who I think accelerated or pulled forward their plans to go to the cloud on their ERP. I think artificial intelligence is going to hold a big piece of what you're going to be doing in the future. Can you tell me how it fits into your intact strategy, your sage strategy in general, artificial intelligence? Yeah, it's it's quite pervasive in how we see the future. Let me start out by giving you a framework for how we see innovation for finance leaders, finance teams, accountants. We've got three very simple, provocative areas of innovation we want for finance and accounting professionals. The first is we want to completely eliminate the financial close, right? We make these things pretty provocative on purpose. What that really means is we want to help our customers to move from periodic cycle-based work where you have point-in-time visibility and it's, you know, it's really historical visibility. We want finance leaders to have continuous visibility. You should always be able to see how your business is performing so that you can make decisions in real time. So that's the first area. And, the, and AI is going to help every step of the way. It's going to help us to automate, right? So the transaction capture is fully automated. It's going to help with continuous reconciliation, where you've got multiple views of what's happening. And of course, it's going to help with accounting rules on adjustments and, and all that accruals and all that fun stuff. The second big area of investment is continuous trust. So we have this maxim that says, as automation increases, it requires a corresponding increase in trust. The simple way to explain that is I, I had a conversation with a small business using our Sage 50 product, and she was struggling with, with one of the capabilities in that product. And I, I asked her, just, have you been using our banking service, which is a way to automatically download and reconcile your bank transactions? And her answer, very, very quick, it brooked like no argument, was no, I don't trust it. She's used to being able to, on her own, compare the bank statements to the ledger and tie it out. But I think more importantly, she's saying is that she's the one sort of signing her name on the line that says these things reconcile, these things tie out. And so it takes an amount of trust to hand that off 
to technology. So what we're trying to do is, is really manage that relationship, but we're also trying to show how technology can increase trust. So we've got a product that's been in market for well, since February of this year called General Ledger Outlier Detection. It uses AI to build patterns in financial transactions. And then based on those patterns, it can spot anomalies. So if posts to your payroll account are typically five digits and suddenly you've got a six-digit post to payroll, right? that's outside the range and AI is going to flag that for extra human review. So we're starting off with these projects where you don't necessarily hand off responsibility to AI. We're actually showing you how AI can support you and increase your confidence in work. So automation, trust, right? Those two go hand in hand. And those two things together should free up accounting and finance teams to be more strategic, to look more to the future. So that's the third big area of investment is using AI to help our customers to see the future. We call it continuous insights. So getting down to real reality, it's things like cash flow forecasting. One of the things that we've learned in our investments in this area is it's not so much is AI more accurate than a human at doing a forecast. I think what our customers have fed back to us is, you know, as long as it's about approximate, if a human and AI is about equal, they're going to be happy. What's really important is that we can use AI to reforecast every day, right, on a continuous basis. So a company that only has the headcount to do their billing forecast once a quarter and so therefore, only once a quarter, they're going to know if they've got some disruption to cash flow. If I tell them, hey, we can have AI reforecast every single day, and it's going to be within about a half a percent of a human forecast, right? Suddenly, it's, it's game-changing for them, right? They get much more warning when there is a change in the business that, that should cause a human to step in and make some decisions about how to react. So our audience needs to really think about this. This is it is game changing, right? It gives you the ability to be much more predictive with your business and decision making and not have to to have the number of humans, particularly for mid-market companies, that it would take to do that of what you're suggesting, the recalculation of forecast. Ellie, I see a question on your lips. I don't know why I see that. <laughs> no, it's true. I actually want to we're having such an interesting conversation about AI, but I want to kind of take a step sideways because I know that you're a blockchain expert. I read that in your bio and I wanted to ask you a two-pronged question, which is what should accounting teams and finance teams be anticipating for decentralized finance? And second, very close to our hearts, I'm sure, what can we expect for the subscription economy? So I will uh, start off. Wow. That came out of the field, huh? <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. I've been dying. I, I know who's you. taking the podcast over next time. Let me correct the record first. I'm not a blockchain expert. I know enough to sound intelligent. And I know how to, to find people who are experts. Blockchain, I've had an up and down relationship with blockchain, right? You know, I, I started off by thinking it was a solution looking for a problem. I've sort of come full circle to it's civilization changing. <laughs> and actually the reality is that we've got a lot of work to do for the technology to catch up to the to the promise. But I'll give you the, the really, really simple answer in my mind on blockchain, which is that accounting for the entire history of humankind has been recorded from the view of a single business organization individual, 
right? It is only my view of what's transpired in business. And so therefore, we have to have big systems in place to validate the veracity of my view of what's happened, right? So I may claim that I've got a thousand customers on contract that are generating uh, $10 million a year in recurring revenue. And because I'm the one making that claim, I've got to hire auditors to come in and call a sample of those customers and look at a sample of those contracts and figure out if those contracts are real. And I'm this third party who hopefully is trusted. In my history, Arthur Anderson lost that trust, right? Hopefully this third party is trusted and they're going to make an assertion and and they come in and apply the trust. The, The beauty of blockchain is that it records the view of the transaction and sort of the contractual interaction by both parties. Both customer and supplier agree on what happened and they write it to a shared ledger. And there's lots of ways to manage that. It can be a private ledger that's the private blockchain, which is shared between the two, perhaps administered by a third party. It could be a, a public blockchain that has other mechanisms for creating mutual trust. But this concept of moving from third party trust to mutual trust really is civilization changing. It takes sort of human decision making, which can be swayed and changes, right, and replaces it with algorithms. And it can be really quite disruptive. The problem is it takes a huge amount of power for these blockchains to operate. They're really not very efficient. They can't handle economy at, at scale and at, at the pace of the way markets move today. And there's, you know, there's a lot of actors who are using this technology in ways that are a bit of a distraction, I think, from the real promise. We are actually, as part of what we're doing, we've built a shared ledger into our, the digital services that we sell to our customers for this very reason that we can create sort of perfect trust in the system in certain cases. So what are my thoughts on subscription? I think most things will move to subscription because it reflects a change in how businesses deliver value to customers, right? It's not just a one-time exchange where you build something and hand it off to somebody and they're responsible for it. You're delivering content over the lifetime of the relationship. So I think more and more things are going to move to subscription because it more accurately reflects these kinds of relationships. I will tell you that I personally get a bit frustrated when there are some things that expect me to create an account (laughs) I was setting up a new printer the other day and it wouldn't print until I created a cloud account for it. Yeah, like (laughs) explain to me why I can't print out a simple black and white piece of paper without creating an account which will allow them to market something to me and create a subscription for something. But ultimately, directionally, I think more and more stuff is going to move to subscriptions. The reason I asked, and so I'm a musician and obviously very interested, you alluded to some of the more high profile cases of artists selling albums via NFT and and that kind of thing. So the reason I asked was the idea that that we can all kind of have ownership or that IP can be distributed among many, many different people. So that's where I see like this interesting idea of the subscription economy kind of getting broken apart by not just a contract between you and a company, but perhaps owning the IP owning a piece of it, which gives you access then to, to software. Yeah. I mean, it's, this is a big, big, big area to talk about, but this idea of ownership and how do you prove ownership of digital assets 
right? If I buy an MP3 through iTunes and I lose the computer and I don't have an Apple ID or, you know, how do I prove that I actually own it? Well, the answer is NFTs, right? Or, or something similar. So it, it really does have, have a role to play. And it comes back to, well, if you want to have a subscription service with somebody, you've got to give them a digital identity. And so this idea that as we operate digitally in digital economies and across the market, this concept of a digital identity that we carry with us and that is you know, how we tie ownership to that iTunes song that I downloaded. We're going to have to get really, really used to that. Right. So I think because blockchain is really the building blocks of, of cryptocurrency, and that's also very hot in the news, is, is Intact and the other Sage products, are they set up to kind of handle these types of currencies as businesses start to adopt them more readily? And you saw El Salvador. Oh, yeah, coin. that's right. So the short answer is that products like Intact don't differentiate between fiat currency and digital currency. With Intact, we use a service called OANDA, which is kind of a recognized third-party publisher of rate information. And as long as we can get a translation, an exchange rate from OANDA for currency, then by all means, you can use it. The challenge is that a single Bitcoin is, what is it, mid-40,000 today? If you're going to use that for a small transaction, the digits of precision you need is pretty crazy. I guess there's two issues. The first is you're dealing with a whole different level of precision with digital currencies and systems have to be able to support that. And then the second is that the traditional ways we think about revaluing currencies or revaluing transactions and balances with digital currencies, they're so volatile that I think the way that we carry digital assets on our books, the way we, we transaction digital, digital currencies, and the way that we sort of audit that and build controls around that is so different from traditional currencies. And we really haven't quite figured that out yet. So I would suspect that accounting products will need to incorporate mechanisms to allow for new controls in how companies operate with digital currencies. Interesting. interesting. Yeah. Thank the, you. Uh, well, there goes my podcast and Allie's the new, well, whatever. It'll be okay. I'll be here all week. Uh, yeah, you'll be here all week. No, good <laughs> job. Good questions. Uh, I want to be really respectful of your time, but can you tell us anything you want to tell us about anything at Sage that's new that people need to know about? Boy, <laughs> it's funny. My days are broken down in 30-minute increments that start around noon in the UK and end at five in California time, right? So I, it's not uncommon to have 15 or 16 meetings in a day. So you'd think I'd have a ready answer for you. <laughs> but who can, who would have a ready answer with those hours? Cause you're so, you're exhausted. <laughs> There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on where I spend my time is, is on our AI investments. We're at a pace to roughly double our AI investments every year. So this has been true for the last couple of years. It's a doubling every year of our AI investments. Some of it is, is organic, right? As we hire more data scientists and AI engineers, some of it's coming through acquisition. So one of the things that I really want people to understand, I guess, about this is technology in general, but, but AI, I think, is the best example. We're not in the business of selling our customers technology, right? I, I'm never going to stand in front of an audience and sell our new AI right, that you can use. We're very, very focused on creating solutions for real problems that our customers face and creating new ways, new and better ways to get things done. 
And technology is, is just a tool. And we like to think that we're pretty well connected with our customers and we have a lot of empathy for our customers. And so I guess what I'm clumsily trying to say here is I guess if there's one thing I'd want the audience to take away is that there's a really, really exciting future in the accounting industry if we can achieve some of these really provocative outcomes like eliminating the financial close. That's what I'm selling, right? I'm selling a world where you don't have to close the books and technology is how we're going to do it. And I would love to explain how, but I think what they really care about is this new and exciting world. Yeah. And closing the books is scale. It's helping a company scale. It's right. It's reducing the need for certain repetitive tasks that humans might do. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. But uh, we pair it. So we say, we've got these two objectives, help customers to digitize their business and elevate human work. And elevate human work. Exactly. Humans aren't very good at repetitive work. No, we Not don't very like fulfilling. That. No, it's a burnout is what it is. You mentioned some of these acquisitions. Is uh, Task Sheriff one of those acquisitions that you've made, which is an artificial intelligence company? Yeah, so that's a small company based in Tel Aviv. We bought that company because I sort of fell in love with the team. Really creative AI engineers and data scientists very pragmatic. It's back to what I was just talking about with technology. It's all about the solution. It's not about the tech. They were using AI to solve some things, and they were using very old tech to solve some things, and they put them together in a way where the outcome was the right one for customers. So that's really an example of where we wanted the team and some of the tech they built. Our customers will see more acquisitions in the future. Some of them will be bigger companies with products that are at scale in the market. But it's all going to be aligned to to the vision that I laid out for how we want to improve our customers' lives. Very interesting. Okay. Well, that brings us to our techtainment section of our podcast. Well, did you have something, Brian, you wanted to ask? No, you just didn't sound excited about going to the techtainment section. Oh, I'm so, so sorry. I, I didn't like, exciting for I you. The, I just thought the host was supposed to be a little more happy. Well, how would you feel if Allie took over your job? Huh? I'm going to have to talk to her after this, but yeah, you know, but we'll talk about that later. Okay. No, maybe Aaron will, will give us an AI bot and that will take over your job, Brian. Uh, <laughs> So I don't give the, the sassy, sarcastic eyebrow raise at him. Yeah, bro. So I'm, I'm so sorry about the excitement. I didn't mean that, but I wanted to go to the tech payment section. There it is. Oh, <laughs> our podcast where we get to ask questions of our guests that may be a little bit unusual and he has no preparation for it. So, um, and mine's really a softball. So I wanted to know because um, it's interesting, perhaps we're different personalities. I'm more of a sales marketing guy, right? So um, what did you want to be? When you were a little boy to grow up to, what did you want to be? I mean, I, I, you know, if I asked the question correctly. I've always wanted to be a software developer. And the funny thing is, I tried to convince myself that I wanted to be other things a lot. But I always came back to my first love, which is I love coding. When did you start coding? I got my first computer when I was 11 or 12. And I made my first money programming when I was 12 or 13. That's a wow, too. Yeah, unbelievable. Hey, I'm not that old. Well, no, I don't mean it that well. I <laughs> I mean, I, no. I am. I lose track. I mean, I'm, I, I forget how old I am sometimes. Uh, don't but worry it was about a while it. ago. This was an 8-bit computer with 64 kilobytes of RAM. So Wow. That's a while, too, because I remember, it, yeah. By the way, they are working on technologies I was reading this weekend where we might be able to extend our lives by uh, 50 years. Did you? I'm not sure you read that. As long as there's a corresponding increase in quality of life, I'll take it. Yes, and I guess it's where you actually are able to be younger. 
I'll have to reread the article because I need it. Um, so yeah, that's what you wanted. So what was the second choice that if, it, if you were convincing yourself you weren't going to be a software developer, what would have been the second choice? I started off in school, uh, civil engineering. I wanted to be an architect and I still love architecture, but I nearly failed my first, it was like a, a chemist, it was a chemistry class. And I found out that I was just, it was just horrible at it and uh, ended up back where I am. Yeah, well, I liked architecture as well, but my, I remember it being draw class, which was much harder than I thought. So nearly failed that as well. Allie, do you have a question? Yeah, I have the second question. So drum roll. Drum roll. Would you rather travel? <laughs> Hold on, let me drum roll. <laughs> All right. Would you rather travel into the past or the future? Future. Like, no doubt. I want to see how some of these things play out. Yeah, that makes sense. Agreed. Like so if I went, one of your answers is, you know, well, don't you want to go back to the past and like, you know, gamble on the World Series or go back to the past and, and discover electricity? I believe that if I went back to the past and I didn't have access to the internet, I wouldn't be able to take advantage of it. <laughs> I, you know, I wouldn't know any of these things. I want to go to the future and see how things play out. My, it just reminds me of my poor grandfather. My father used to bet him because he loved watching the wrestling matches or the boxing matches, and my father had already seen it. And he would bet them on the outcome. <laughs> <laughs> He'd win the bet. Oh, I, I'm sure he feels badly. Hey, uh, Brian, what do you got? The last tech team in question. So, Aaron, what's the best gift you've ever received? Some people have sentimental stuff. Some people have pure luxury related assets oh, but what's the, the best, best gift you have had i've ever received it's oh, the boy. podcast <laughs> <laughs> mike mike's being on the podcast <laughs> <laughs> oh boy my kids know to give me crazy socks and graphic t-shirts for gifts because that's the safest thing to do with me my girlfriend for my birthday this year which was a big milestone birthday she bought me a piece of artwork that was drawn by AI. So there's a, there's a company out there where you feed it a few inputs and it paints something for you. And I just thought that was really, really awesome. So, you know, any, any gift that shows, you know, somebody. And, right. That yeah, shows they care. Yeah. That then it's like, it's not so much how much you spend. It's the effort to find the right thing. And that was that was a really cool gift. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. My wife of 32 years got me black socks. I like black. That's it. She knows me. Get you, gets it for you every month, I bet. Just the same. Right. Yeah. Whatever. Whatever, <laughs> Brian. Well, listen, I want to thank you for joining us, uh, Aaron. It's really been an honor to have you on the show and your insights. Anything you want to leave the folks out there with what's in store this next year at Sage? Anything breaking through that we get here first on the podcast we're gonna keep rocking and rolling we got lots of stuff coming out i mean i always i already felt like i was selling too much no i don't it's think so un- at all it's uncomfortable for engineers to sell yeah no that's not no i really wanted to really this is about educating the audience on technologies that can help them and sage intact and all of the sage products are solutions that can help companies improve and again it's i look at technology as an enabler to help them to get there. Not the silver bullet necessarily, but people process and apply technology. So I tell you that the next feature that's coming, and it's in our next, it's in our fiscal year, next fiscal year, which starts October 1st. So I'm cheating here a little bit because it's coming in October. We've got a capability we're releasing called wage verification, which enables employees who are paid through a Sage product 
to authorize a lender to digitally access their pay and employment history without requiring the employer to provide it. So we're writing, we're writing pay history to a blockchain. Well, it's like it's a it's called Amazon Quantum Ledger. It's an immutable append-only ledger. But essentially, once of it's course written it this, is. <laughs> <laughs> so so once it's written to this ledger, the employee can now, and this is through a partnership with Experian. The employee can authorize a participating lender in, the, in this program with Experian to digitally access their pay history without having to involve their employer. And we think it represents a huge shift in how we think about data ownership and data rights. Right? Suddenly, the fact that the employee has full control to harness this data to get a loan or get a mortgage or whatever, I think it's game-changing. And even if the feature itself is a little droll, it's a big change in the way we think about data and ownership and how we can use new technologies to enable that. Well, I think that's terrific. Thank you very much. That's And are we the first to know about this? No. Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> but hey, when, you, uh, when we put this out to edit, uh, just make sure, Brian, we are just, just say we are the first. You're the first podcast. We're, we're, we're breaking news. Podcast. Breaking first news. Pod, yeah, breaking news. First yeah. podcast. To, first podcast. To, to okay. okay. Yeah. Well, Aaron, again, thank you very much. Uh, we love our partnership with Sage. It's a wonderful company. You truly do live to help uh, clients. I see it every day. So thanks for joining us. And uh, thanks for my sidekicks. And um, I look forward to more discussions in the future. Allie Lippman, who's been my sidekick today. Thank you. Brian Anderson, thank you very much. And uh, folks out there, please listen to our podcast where podcasts can be found. That's everywhere. And we'll see you next time on our Growth Enablement Madness podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of Growth Enablement Madness podcast. I also want to thank Divinio Podcast for this episode's production and distribution. Finally, thank you to Sam Ward for our musical introduction and outro. Be sure to check out all of our episodes wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. New episodes are available monthly and cover all important topics for growing and scaling your business. Until next time, this is Jim Ward signing off. Let's grow. Let's grow.